So Dan is still traveling. He'll be back next week. Um, he is traveling with Dr. Moeller on the Ask Anything tour. And he was at UCLA. And then late last night, Jane, I received a text from Dan with a picture. He happened to run into somebody who used to go to church here in Southern California. He's in Southern California now. He ran into Hinty. So Dan sent me a picture about 10.30 last night. I said, look who I'm with. He was with Hinty. So Hinty used to be an intern here. He was a great guy, big help to this church. So that was really neat. I am uh, thrilled to introduce and excited to introduce Jeff Hunter. Jeff serves the Dean of Students at Southern Seminary and he worked with Dan closely. My connection to them, which I didn't even know until this morning was, is that Jeff's and Stephanie's daughter, uh, Rachel Hunter, run, ran man camp for two or three years. Uh, if you know, man, we have man camp on our farm and she did the Southern Seminary part. And so before she started, uh, she's a phenomenal uh, young lady. It's unbelievable. But so we had these young men running it and they didn't have a clue what to do. They didn't know what shells to buy or, or anything. They couldn't even get like the, the hot dogs right. I mean, once, once Rachel took it over, it was incredible. She did an incredible job. So we're so glad that uh, Jeff and Stephanie are here. They've been married 30 years. And like I said, he is the Dean of Students at Southern. And uh, he was a pastor for many, many years. But he told me this morning he feels right at home because they were in a church plant. They met in a school, and so they were used to meeting at, at schools and tearing everything. He said, I just feel like I'm coming back home. So we are so thrilled that you're here. They have three daughters, two son-in-laws, a grand bo a baby boy, and a granddaughter now. So they have two grandkids. So we are so glad that you're here. Thanks for serving our church. Come up and preach for us this morning. last 10 years that, uh, that Steph and I served uh, in church, we, make sure I'm on here, you tell me when it's right, get on, it's me, it's not you, there we go, perfect, I'm just going to drop it in my pocket, that's the way it's extra close, we did, we served for the last 10 years of, of ministry uh, in, a, in a church plant, and it was the best of times. It was. It was It was great. And so we're very thankful to be with you this morning. And we're thankful to be able to, uh, to share God's word with you. And so I want to do that right now. I'm going to be preaching from 1 Peter. And uh, don't panic as I go through my pages here. I want to make sure I have the right ones. That's always a, a terrible thing to happen. I'm going to be preaching from 1 Peter this morning, and it's the value of a living hope. And uh, this is the first, we're taking up this morning from the first section of the first chapter of the first epistle written by Peter. And he was writing to the churches, or to, the, to, to, to those of the church that had been spread abroad. And they had been spread ab abroad, not because they wanted to, they weren't out planning churches because that was their first uh, desire and their first training. The reason they were spread abroad or dispersed was because they had been persecuted. Because of the hardships and the trials and the persecution that came to them because of their faith, they found them dispersed. And they nobody asks. It's kind of counterintuitive for that. But, but that's what they were experiencing. And so the context as well as the purpose of the letter is encouragement in the midst of hardship and persecution. And I want to I both encourage and warn us this morning about 1 Peter. And I, and I told Troy I should have done this before. I went on the website and looked and I saw that it wasn't too long ago that you actually had a series from 1 Peter. And I will tell you um, that about 12 years ago, um, maybe a little more, I did a series from 1 Peter, and it was one of the most glorious times. It was the most difficult time. Because the very ask that we'll deal with, you'll, you've already dealt with it before, and I'm going to remind you of it today, is that we're called to pray for the very things that's counterintuitive for which to pray. We're going to be asking for things, and so I get to, I get to kind of parachute in here this morning. Uh, kind of as a special ops, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with some hard truths. I know you get hit with hard truths all the time, 
Um, but, but these are truths, and I, I can just tell you that the results, and, and you can be sure of this, anytime God's word is preached, there will be results. Sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes you don't see them. But there will always be results. And there will always be consequences. You can know that. You cannot expect that God's word will ever be preached and there won't be consequences. And so you, you should never ask the question, I wonder if God is working as a result of, of his word being preached today. You, you should never, ever ask that question. You can be sure, you can have this confidence that anytime God's word is preached, there will be results, there will be consequences, some more visible than others. In the case of 1 Peter, I was taking a bit of a hiatus, a, a segue actually, between the first section of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11, and then Romans chapters 12 through 16. And in, in the interim, I preached an eight series or eight sermon series from 1 Peter. And the purpose was to kind of refresh, rejuvenate, encourage us before we moved into the next section in Romans, which if you're familiar with the book of uh, to, to Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote, this was written, the first portion was all about this is what the gospel is. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is not what it means. This is what it means. This is what it means to be justified. This is what it means to be made the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And huge truths that are amassed up all the way through to the end of chapter 11. When you get to the end of chapter 11, this wonderful doxology. And then chapter 12 begins with, therefore. In light of not just the last few verses, but in light of everything that we've learned about the gospel, everything that we know to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfections, his righteousness, and now your justification through him. Everything that we know about these things, now this is how to live. And this is the most consequential part of the word of God. It's not just that, and James even says this in, in his epistle, that we would not only be hearers of God's word, but what? Doers. Right. And, and so we know that when God's word is proclaimed, it's not proclaimed for us to just kind of think about and only to meditate upon. Certainly we should think and meditate upon the truths of God. But God's word is given to us in order that our feet and our hands and our eyes and our everything about us might be completely transformed. That's what happens between the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of verse 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies that they now understand, right? The mercies of God that now you just lay it down. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do this. And so the rest of, 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 of Romans is all about what it looks like to die to the old self and to be raised, as chapter 6 of Romans says, to walk in newness of life. This is what it looks like. This is your new spiritual service of worship, as Paul says. So in between the, the, uh, the doxology for from him and through him and to him are all things, to therefore I beseech you, brethren, in between there I said this would be a nice kind of encouragement and challenge to us to move into that, First Peter. And the result of First Peter is that we're, we're confronted with the hard truth of this. I just want to reiterate that God's word does have consequence. And if it has had consequence, saving consequence in our lives, then it's going to look like something. If we reject God's word and we harden our heart to God's word and to his spirit, then it's going to look like something else. It's going to look like something. It's going to either look like being conformed to the image of Christ or it's going to look like us being more and more like the world. It's, it's going to prove that. It's going to show that. Now, we think of this individually, don't we? What's it like when sanctification is happening in your life? Right? Is it easy? Hard? Sometimes it's the hardest thing ever. One of the things that happens is God begins to just unveil. He begins to reveal and said, this is who you are, Jeff. Have you ever prayed, God, show me my sin? You ever had that? You ever prayed that prayer? And you do, and you should pray that prayer. But when you pray that prayer, typically our sin is not revealed in private. Well, sometimes our sin is in private, but the way God reveals our sin, sin is very publicly. 
and he reveals who we really are. And so when we say, Father, please show us who we are, it's not in a private context at all, is it? It's corporate. It's all of us together. And so, well, let me just ask you husbands and wives this. How's, how's it going as your husband is being sanctified in your home? What's it like as your wife is being sanctified in your home? Are, are you feeling the repercussions of that as they're stressing and straining over the hidden sin, some sin that's been lodged in their hearts for years, and now God says, today is the day. I'm going to pull it out. And what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, so what happens in, in God's word as it begins to reveal these things and, re and, and show them to us, it shows it to other people as well. And we're, we're exposed. Sometimes that happens in a very personal way. But when God's word is proclaimed to God's people, it's, it, it's shown in a very public way. So here's the warning. It's a good warning. It's just like the warning that you see before you, you get on a plane and you're going to go up, you know, however many feet and jump out, parachute. There's a warning. You might die. And we're not responsible for your death. So get your affairs in order, right? Now, they're pretty strict about that for legal reasons, and they want you to know that before you get onto the plane, before you jump out of the plane, because there is that chance. But why do people do it? Because they're compelled to do it. They want to do it. Why, why do Christians, why do God's people pray for things that are very counterintuitive? Why do we rejoice in things that are in conflict with our own soul at times? Because we're compelled. The love of Christ, the scripture says, compels us, constrains us to, to these things. And, and so it becomes very, very obvious to us. And so during the, that period of time in our church, as, as God's word was being proclaimed and, and as we were dealing with these, not just the truths, but the consequences of these truths, we were beginning to discover a lot of things about ourselves. And it was difficult. It was, it was difficult. So in other words, what we found out during this time, and I pray this morning that you will be also challenged to learn the same things, not what we should believe. I hope that you're reminded of what you should believe, but we don't have time for too much of that. But not just what we should believe, but what we truly believe, what, what's real about us. And, and the truth is that what you truly believe is only seen most clearly out there. When, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go into your homes, that's when the evidence of what you truly believe just blooms. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? But it's also a glorious thing. So that reality will be established by the price we are willing to pay for those beliefs. And that becomes back to our passage that we'll read in just a moment. What we believe, what God's word says, is ultimately confirmed in our lives by the price that we're willing to to pay for those beliefs. Or we might say it this way, what is the value of standing firm in this truth? What is the value of standing firm in this truth? Peter's writing words of encouragement to faithful Christians who've been driven from their homes and their lands because they were unwilling to compromise for what they believed. This was the consequence. They believed it and there came a day when they were forced to really reckon with or determined that they absolutely believed what they said they believed. And what it cost them was really virtually everything. They were driven into the, into the land of where it was not friendly to them. They had to go into foreign land, into the pagan land where it was not friendly to them because the only way that they would be able to survive would be to be dispersed. And I want us to think about this truth not just merely in historical terms. We have to grasp that, that there was a time, there are times in history, there have been times in history where people have been driven out. But I want us to think about it even in terms of our own culture this morning. What is, what is the cost of our faith? What is the cost of standing firm in what we believe, what God's word says, therefore our faith? What is the cost that we're willing to pay? And the only way we'll know what we're willing to pay is when it's demanded of us. So here's another warning. Oftentimes we think of persecution coming from the outside. We think of persecution coming from maybe the police show up or the government officials say that we can and can't do certain things. But what do we know about where judgment begins? 
It always begins here. And this is where the warning is. That as we begin to deal with what we believe and what, what we believe is true and that we hold and the, the cost of that, we have to know that it's not something that's very far off and maybe coming to us. But the first place we have to deal with it is in our own hearts, in our own families, and in our own church. So before we turn to our focal passage in 1 Peter this morning, I want us to grasp or, or maybe grasp at this concept of persecution and suffering for our beliefs. Persecution is a perfect example of why we should never try to pray outside the context of Scripture. Persecution is, I think, the best example of why we should never try to pray outside the context of Scripture. And by that I mean that there are things in God's Word we are to seek. And there are things in God's Word that we're even to long for that are absolutely contrary to our natural flesh desires. Do you know that to be true? That they're not, I, I use the word, it's counterintuitive. It goes against our very nature, the, our very intuition. It says, it doesn't feel right to pray for these things. And, and, and the big one would be to pray for hardships and trials and persecutions. Are you up for that? Um, when, when we come to God's word and, and we read it in the historical context, which we should always do, one of the dangers, however, is that we leave God's word in its historical context, right? This is what happens to them then and there, but not to us here now. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are, are we willing to not just say to intellectually assent to the idea of that we should be persecuted. We should experience hardships and trials. The, the gospel is very clear that, that not only did Christ suffer for us, but the gospel extended into the church is that we are to join into those sufferings. Did you know that? That we're not to just kind of vicariously watch what Jesus did for us and see that he did it on our behalf. That's true. But we're called, the New Testament calls us many times, the Lord Jesus himself calls us to join into the sufferings with which he suffered. The Apostle Paul talks about us being able to comfort one another with the comfort with which we've been comforted. But how, would, how will we be able to comfort others unless we ourselves have been comforted? Likewise, how are we to experience this comfort in, unless we've experienced hardships and trials and persecutions? Let me give an example, a natural example, of when we... Um, Try to do something that is against our very nature. If, if I took you right now, and I don't want you to panic, I, I get, I'm a, the older I get, the more claustrophobic I get. So if I get a little flush up here, a little squirrely, and run out, it's because of that. Because just thinking about it right now, Steph knows, there are times if I have one of those dreams, like I'm in a tunnel or something like that, I'll just wake up. I don't care what time it is. I'll just wake up. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going back to sleep again. I'm done. I gotta get. I gotta get my head. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna go, kind of take you there because this is counterintuitive. If I told you, if I looked at, if I took, in fact, Elijah and Aiden, I said, "You guys trust me, don't you? Aiden, do you trust me? All right. I'm gonna take you out to the pool, and I and I want you to understand something. There's something unique and wonderful about this water. I'm gonna put you under the water, and there's gonna be a moment when maybe 30 seconds in, you're gonna feel like you need to take a deep breath." And what I want you to do is, I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to go ahead and breathe underwater, okay? You can trust me. Do you trust me, Aiden? No, not anymore. See, all of a sudden, see, now we know, how, we know where the trust is. Now we know where the love is. He said he trusted me until I, I asked something pretty tough. It's counterintuitive. It's against our nature to think about, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you underwater. And, I, and I'm going to look at, look, what if it's your own child? And you say, trust me. Just go under there. And I'm going to hold you down until you can't, you can't take it anymore. And then I just want you to breathe. I've got news for you. I'm, I'm not breathing. If even, I don't care who tells me that. It's against everything about what, because I don't breathe underwater. I'm not a fish. That's not my nature. That's not who I am. My nature is to breathe air with my lungs, right? So if, I, if I'm called to, to do something that's against my nature, it's going to be a struggle for me. 
There are things in Scripture that are absolutely against our nature, our old nature, and we'll never pray for them. We absolutely resist hardship in our natural state. We even pray for God to remove hardship and trials. But such natural tendencies and prayers are contrary to the will of Christ. Is it possible that you're actually praying contrary to the will of Christ? It's possible. In fact, on, on many levels, it's, it's probable. Then how do we know to pray for things contrary to our will? How do we know what to pray for? That's the question. Boys and girls, how do you know what to pray for in your home? You learn to pray by listening to mom and dad pray, right? That's how you learn to pray. And maybe listening to, to your, your friends pray. But the best way to learn to pray, and that's a good thing, but one of the best ways to learn to pray is by just listening with the Bible. What does the Bible tell us that's important? So God's Word. Scripture focuses our prayers to be in accordance with the will of the Father. So this is not just individually. I'm saying as a church. Crossings, Bardstown, join together and begin to pray. And perhaps you are all already, so I want to encourage you to continue to pray for those things and pray for one another in ways that are absolutely contrary to your nature, your old nature, and, and pray according to what the Scripture says. Let me give you an example. And this is our parallel of, uh, uh, passage. You already heard a great one from Romans this morning. I want to give you another one. I alluded to it a moment ago from James. Okay, I'm going to build this context Super tight for us. So when I launch into the passage, the points are just going to fall. They're just going to fall out. You'll, you'll see them easily. All right? So here's our example, and it's a parallel passage, and it's in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 12 at the end. James, a bondservant of God and the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are what? What does it say? Dispersed. They're, he's writing to the same people. Spread abroad. Greetings. I want you to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You like that, so you might circle endurance. You want endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Wait, but wait, there's more, right? Not only endurance, but there's something else. Knowing that this endurance will have its perfect result, and here's, here's the payoff, so that you may be Perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Now that's, that's a good promise. And that is a promise that we will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let me tell you something about the promises of God. The Bible says that the only way to please God is through, there's only one way to please God. Did you realize that? Only one, by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, right? Of course. It is impossible to please God any other way but to believe him. Now, that's pretty amazing when you consider that most religions are based upon doing a lot of stuff in, in order to please God or the gods or, or whomever. But the God who made you says, there's only one way you can please me, and this is what it is. You've got to believe me. You have to believe me. And, and so any time... For example, you're thinking, I want to make God happy. I want to just do something big for God. Instead of asking or saying, I want to do something big for God in the sense that we often think of, just do the one thing that God requires of us that makes him most happy, which is just believe him. Just believe him. So you realize every time you come across a promise in the scripture or an imperative in the scripture, that's an opportunity for you to, to please God. Because every time God makes a promise... We're faced with saying, either that's true or it's not true. And so when we read a promise of God, we say, that's true. But that's not alone. Because the same one who writes this promise in, in James, he also says, don't only be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. So don't only affirm by saying, yes, that's true. I believe that's true. But the next question is, how do you believe that's true? How do we know that that's true? How can you possibly understand and believe that you know that that promise is true, and this will make a lot of sense in just a moment, for the very thing and person that you've never seen? How can you believe that? Of course, the word's faith. And faith is not something that is, that is just an abstraction. Faith is very tangible. James speaks of that as well. And then verse 12. So blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So here's, here's what he called your the designation that you're given is blessed. You are a blessed man or woman, boy or girl, when you 
persevere under trial for. Once he has been proved or approved, he will receive the crown of life. There's, there is the, the finish of the promise. You'll be complete and lacking nothing. You can see that in your sanctification here, right? You can begin to see that happening. But then he promises you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised. And there it is, to those who love him. It's important to understand that persecution is the direct result of standing firm in our faith, believing what God says, but not merely in friendly confines. And that's why it's, we, you have to come together. You cannot forsake the gathering of yourselves together, every opportunity that you have, because it's when we come together that we're encouraged in order that when we go out there, we might prove what we believe. You don't prove much in here. And I said before, the persecution oftentimes begins here because there is a winnowing effect that happens. There begins to be evidence of who truly believes and who truly does not. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? It's a hard thing. It happens in your home. Look, if, if you have little boys and girls in your home right now and you're teaching them the scriptures and they're affirming the scriptures, you should rejoice. And as they grow and as they affirm the scriptures and perhaps even affirm the scriptures by, by making a, a public profession of their faith through baptism, you should rejoice. But you need to understand that there's no ultimate rejoicing until what? Until they're launched out of your home. Until you see them living in a hostile world and holding to their faith. That's when you rejoice, isn't it? That's when you rejoice. I'm giving, you are going to be so, when I read the scripture in just a moment, you're going to go, there it is, there it is, there it is. You're going to see the points. I won't even have to put them up. You'll know. Because what happens is when you, when you see your belief pressed down, squeezed, or when you see belief in your children pressed down and, and, and sometimes crushed in a hostile world, and you see them standing firm in their faith, then you know. And that is precious. That's not my word. That's what the scripture says. That is more precious than anything when you see that. You should rejoice every affirmation your child, your son or daughter gives about the gospel and believing. And you should rejoice to the extent that you can rejoice. But there will be no rejoicing like the rejoicing. And let's just move it all the way to the day of judgment. When they stand around the, the glorious throne, right? All of us. And, and we have, we've survived, right? All of those trials and struggles and hardships. And that's why we pray. And that's why we seek for things like persecution. Because it is through persecution that we really see what we believe. Don't take my word for it. You know that the Lord Jesus spoke to this very clearly. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Understand that persecution is not when people give you a hard time about something that is even a natural affliction that you have, right? It, you're, you're, if, if you're just, if you're just not a, 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 a particularly, I'm hesitating here because you don't know. If, if you're just an ugly person, right? And I'm just talking, you're just ugly. And, <laughs> and, and, and people give you a hard time about, about being ugly. About whatever, however you define that. I'm, not, I'm looking not at anyone, all right? <laughs> however you define that, but you know, right? Because people, you know, they make fun of you, you know? I, I was raised, a, I was a redhead, right? So I know what it's like to be a redhead on the playground, a guy redhead, right? Um, they don't say like a redheaded stepchild for nothing, right? So you, but that's not, because they make fun of you because of whatever, that's not persecution, Right? Or if you're not as fast as everybody else, or if you're not as skilled as... That's not persecution. That's just, that's just mean people. That's just living in a mean world, and sometimes you're mean too, right? That's not persecution. Persecution is in direct relationship, and Jesus defines it. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, when you're standing firm in your faith, and you're living in righteousness, and people give you a hard time or press into your life in, a, in an uncomfortable way or sometimes in a very difficult way, that's true persecution. Jesus says, for the sake of righteousness, but not only that, 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the promise. Isn't that awesome? And now you're going to see a connection here that on the one hand may feel a little uncomfortable, but I think it's going to be, I, I really think, and this is why we're together. Sometimes these kind of things by ourselves make us panic, but we're together, so you shouldn't panic. Okay? You might want to reach over and hold somebody's hand or, or just snuggle up. But listen, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Again, not because there's something wrong with you naturally or an affliction or something like that, or even because of something that you've done. No. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So here's the two qualifiers. Persecution is when people, they, they hate you because you love righteousness and you hate sin. And because you live that way, that brings persecution in a world that loves sin. When you love Jesus and people say all kinds of evil, they slander you and they even make, they just make things up about you because of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Rejoice. Be glad. He's going to say it again. Because your reward in heaven is great. Now, if you want a reward on earth, then don't love righteousness. Love sin or compromise. Don't Identify with me, not just in a cultural way, but in a way that says, because Jesus ultimately was despised and rejected. So if, you are, if you're going to identify with me, Jesus says, they're going to hate you. If you love righteousness, they're going to hate you and they're going to reject you. But rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven will be great. See what's happening? Oh, I'm excited because now I'm, I'm looking into the passage. And if you remember 1 Peter chapter 1, you're already there, right? Don't look down at me. But, but you know it's already there. You know that this is tangible. And that's, just, that's another thing I want to bring out before we, get, before we just unlock this. There's a tangibility. It's not abstract. It's a very real substance to your faith. And that real substance will look like real persecution, real hardship. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's also in our passage. All right, here's the crux of the issue, and then we're going to get there. We love our kingdom more than we love God's kingdom. That's one of the problems that we have, isn't it? We just love our kingdom more than we love God's kingdom. Here's the conflict that requires obedient faith. Okay, this is not me chastising. I'm just, I'm just affirming. We love this kingdom. We love our kingdom on earth more than we love God's kingdom. You say, no, I don't. You do. I do. It's true. And, and here's how we know. Because it's a struggle for us. And one of the reasons is because we've never seen the kingdom of God. Not completely. Although Jesus, he, he, he kind of helps us to understand what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. But this is more, this is more tangible to us. And this is where I want to turn the corner for us this morning. When, when our faith becomes more real, more tangible than even the things of this world, that's when, that's when we turn the corner and, it's, and then we love the kingdom of God more. How do we know that? How can the kingdom of God be more tangible and real on earth than the things that I'm touching here? Well, I already spoke to it. It's through hardship, trials, and persecution. That's the only way. The only way you're going to love the kingdom of God more and prove that you love the kingdom of God more is to stand firm in your faith. When you stand firm in your faith, when you stand firm in your faith in the midst of a hostile world that hates righteousness and rejects Jesus, then you're going to start losing everything in this world that is tangible. And the only thing you'll have to hold on to is Jesus and the church. And that's when we rejoice and can say, I really do love the kingdom of God more than this world. For some of you right now, it's, it's just an abstraction. And probably it should be in where you are in your sanctification, where you're growing. And that's, that's the purpose of this letter, is to move you beyond the abstraction to the tangible. And if you're having a hard time doing that, God will help. He'll help move you from the abstract. Christianity that's, that's abstract is it's not real. So he'll help move you into the tangible. And one of the ways he does that, of course, is through trials. And that's why we're told to rejoice. 
We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the things that we love about this kingdom and we worry about will be added to us. We don't have to worry about those things. We will believe in Jesus until it costs us something if we do not have saving faith. And, and I, I go back to what faith is. Faith is when we are not just abstractly kind of believing something, holding on to something, but when we begin to apply. And that's why James even says, okay, you say you have faith, but I show you my faith through my works. And he's not just saying about like good things that he does. The works of righteousness, the things that demonstrate that Christ is in us. A sure indicator that we do not have saving faith. This is important. In our motivation to follow or reject Jesus. Because we want the approval of man more than the obedience to God. We find that to be true oftentimes. That we love the approval of man more than the approval of God. Because men are right here. And so here's our goal. In order for us to make the kingdom of God more tangible and Christ himself more tangible than the one who's standing right here demanding your approval or demanding that you be approved. Notice what happens when we have saving faith in contrast with just an abstract, not real faith. And the best way from Scripture, Peter and John, you remember where they were and what it looked like when Jesus was arrested and, and everything that led up to that. Peter denied, fled. John was there, but he was there out of duty, taking care of Jesus' mother. He's his friend. They've all rejected him. If you, if you just go to the end of the Gospels and finish the Gospels and flip immediately to the book of Acts and just read in chapter 2, 3, 4... All of a sudden, you're like, these guys are not the same guys that were, that, that were before. What happened? What happened? They got saved. I mean, they really got saved. I mean, there's always debate about when they were really saved. Well, here's, here's the reality. I mean, we don't know. But what really is the evidence, and this is why we rejoice, is because before there's a lot of doubt. And Peter had doubt. And John had doubt. And they all had doubt. And they all had reasons to have doubt. Do you know why? Because... They were afraid. They loved this world. They loved this kingdom more than they loved the kingdom of God. And they, they just punked out and they ran away. But Jesus in his mercy and the spirit of God through his power comes to them and transforms them. And the same Peter, the same Peter that we see saying, I don't know. I don't even know who he is. And even cusses because he wants to make it emphatically clear that he has nothing to do with Jesus. You jump forward literally a matter of months and Peter is standing there on the day of Pentecost saying, this same Jesus that you crucified, right, was raised from the dead. What happened? What happened? Something amazing happened, and that's what we pray for to happen in our own lives and in the lives of our children. Persecution comes as a result of resisting the, the evil and compromising attitudes and behavior this world naturally produces. When people are confronted by your unwavering faith, standing firm in your faith, standing in God's word, the result will be, it's not maybe, it will be suffering and hardship inflicted by the enemies of God upon the children of God. And so here we find an axiom. Maybe you've already got this highlighted in your Bible. If you do that, this would be a good one to highlight. This is an axiom from the scripture. For those who are truly following Christ, Here's what we know. 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy in the ministry. He says this in verse 12 of chapter 3. And indeed, all, you might want to circle, underline, super highlight all. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, imperative, will be persecuted. They will. It's not a maybe. It's not a merely historical thing. It's not only for the Middle East or in, in places where it's obviously hostile. Everybody who desires to live godly. In other words, to have their faith be made sight, to be seen, to live for Christ, they will be persecuted. And so now let us look at our passage and watch how the, how the points will just fall out. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to all of those who reside as aliens and strangers, they're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are the elect or who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Chosen by God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So we've already 
right off the bat. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work here in our salvation in the church. Sanctifying work of the Spirit that you, so here's to this end, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused you. He has caused us. He has caused. He's not watching and waiting. He has absolutely caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain. So here's the first point. An inheritance, a secure inheritance. Here's the promise. He has done all this in order that we might obtain, have a secure inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. Here's the second point. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. He will give you the saving faith. He will give you a guarding faith who are protected by the power of God. So you're protected by the power of God. But what does that look like? That seems abstract, doesn't it? What does the power of God look like in a believer? It looks like faith. Through faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed when at the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. And look over, just look over to verse 18. Just, just probably across the page from you. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life in this futile kingdom that's passing away. But with precious blood as of the Lamb. Unblemished. So this, this faith, this saving faith that we have is the most valuable, the most valuable thing in the universe, the blood of Christ that brings to us salvation. Even though tested by fire, you may be found to result in praise and glory. Why? Because an honor and revelation of Jesus Christ, because Christ will be seen in you. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though, you say, I love Jesus. How do you know you love Jesus? Every child, I remember asking that question, Jesus loves me. How do I know he loves me? Because the Bible tells me so. Okay, I got that. How do I know that I love him? I say that I love him, but how do I know that I love him? Here we go. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but Believe. There's the issue. Faith. You believe in him. You, here he says it again. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith. See, so all, a moment ago in verse 4, we obtain a secure inheritance. That's the promise on the front side in heaven for us. Here he's saying at the front side, he's actually kind of going in reverse. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This moves us to what the third point is, as to this salvation, this great salvation. We have a great salvation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them. You ever heard people say, the Spirit of God didn't, didn't come and indwell in people until the New Testament? Not so. Set right here. And they, the prophets, and what did Jesus say about the prophets? They hated them. Rejoice, be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you. Why? Because they were just obnoxious and loud and they kept in No. Because the spirit of Christ was in them. And even then, as they were trying to make sense of everything that God was revealing to them, the same spirit that was in, that's in you, enabling you to understand and, and make sense of things, the same spirit was in them. Not just some amorphous spirit of God. The spirit of Christ Jesus within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. But you. In 
these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, don't panic, but there's a series within a series within a series here. There's so much here. But let me do this for us as we, as we consider these points. I want us to realize, I want to back up from this a second, and just our faith is going to cost us. Saving faith, real faith will cost. There's no way around it. It's impossible for you to be in Christ and still remain in the world in the sense that the world accepts you. It's impossible. Now, it doesn't happen all at once, but as you're sanctified, as you're conformed more and more to the image of Christ, and you become more like him, you become less like the world, you will experience hardship and trial and persecution. Remember, that's an imperative. I hope you highlighted it. All those who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It's a will. It's an axiom. You can count on it. So when you... Accept, and today would be the day to do that, incidentally. Accept that your faith will cost you individually. It will cost you as a family. It will cost you as a church. It will cost you. Our belief in God and our obedience to his word is costly. The reason persecution is to be welcomed and even prayed for, remember, counterintuitive, but even prayed for, is that it is the only way we will discover the value of, of our faith in Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way that we... And that's why every time it speaks of this, the scripture, it always says, and you will rejoice. You will rejoice greatly. Why? Because you will know the value of your faith in Christ. It's one thing to say or to sing about, for example, the precious blood of Jesus or, Lord, you're more precious than gold and, or silver and costly than gold. It's quite another to actually have the opportunity to prove that worth in our lives. So the truth is, the only way we're able to prove that worth, the only way is through persecution brought on by living our beliefs. We have to live them. We have to live them. Let me give you a quick example of kind of an absurd example. I'm going to make a big statement here. I believe cats have the right to live. I do. I absolutely believe cats have the right to live. I even believe that cats have the right to live in our country. I even believe that cats have the right to live in the state of Kentucky. I live in Jefferson County. I believe that cats have the right to live in Jefferson County. Are you impressed? Think I, think I love cats? I believe that cats have the right to live in my yard. You should say amen. And then somebody says, Jeff, want a cat? No. Don't you want a cat to live in your house? No. I don't want a cat in my house. How about in your bedroom? No. I don't want a cat in my house. I don't want a cat in my bedroom. You said you, you think cats ought to have the rights to live. Yeah, in our country, in our county, our state, even in my yard. But don't bring a cat in my house. So what do you know about what I believe about the rights of cats to live. And incidentally, there were no cats harmed in the writing of this sermon or anything like that. Cats are fine in your house. And that's the way our beliefs are, aren't they? The farther away our beliefs are, the easier it is to say, oh, I believe that. But when our, when, when they, the, closer, the closer our beliefs get to our own lives and to our own stuff, that's when we prove what we really believe about Christ and what he says. So the believers that we discover in here, history, Pontus and Galatian, Cappadocia and so on, these are examples of those who rejoice and they value their faith greatly. And the reason we know that and the reason they did is because it cost them. They didn't believe in the abstract they didn't believe in something out there. They believed in something right here. And the closer our beliefs get to who we are, the more it's going to affect our lives. They suffered great loss for it. We will suffer great loss for it. 
They were far more blessed perhaps than even we are because they experienced a more tangible faith than we do because of that persecution. You want to be blessed? You want to be considered blessed? You want to be... Then you pray for that which is hard. You pray for trials and hardships and persecution even. And that's what a living hope looks like. That's what it stands for. That's what it is, is emblematic of. A living hope is when we believe to the extent to the close proximity of our lives so much that it costs us. So what is the essence? What is the essence of this living hope? We already saw it in the scripture. We have a secure inheritance. The essence, the stuff of our living hope is a real inheritance. You say, but it's in heaven. You should be glad that it's in heaven. Because if it was here, then we couldn't say that it was imperishable or, or that it was undefiled or unfaithful. We, we couldn't say that because if it were here where moth and rust can get in and destroy it, it'd be wrecked. And so God has promised us an inheritance in heaven. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We don't even know what it looks like. There's debate among all kinds of people about whether or not we'll have a house or just a room, right? Or, or maybe we just won't even, we'll just kind of walk around. the world. Nobody knows. We don't know. And so that kind of scares you, doesn't it? Because it's not tangible. But you've got to understand something. When, when, when the Word of God tells us that we have an inheritance in heaven secure for us, that is the stuff of our faith. In other words, that's the very core of what we're believing. That God has promised to those who trust Him and believe Him and believe the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is our only sufficiency. Through his blood, we have salvation. Through his death, through his resurrection, we have the salvation. Not, not through our own. And so the gospel is not complete until we understand that, for example, that, that God doesn't just, he didn't just send his son to die for us in order that we might be saved. But the scripture says in order that we might be with him. With him. Have you considered that? That the, the completion of the gospel is, is not seen until we're with him and we're with him forever. That's a joyous thing. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we joy, love being with him now? And one of the ways that we demonstrate being with him is being together as brothers and sisters in Christ. This secure inheritance, whatever and all that it, 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 it's all about, we know that the, the inheritance is the very it's the, it's the very thing, the very essence of our living hope, and it's, it's not here. It's not here. You're not going to find it here. You're not going to find it in anything here. It's waiting for us. It's imperishable. It'll never be destroyed. It's undefiled. It's, it, 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 it can never be smudged or wrecked. It can't be made dirty or impure. It's unfading. It means that it's never going to lose its beauty, and it's in heaven awaiting our, revive, uh, our arrival. The impenetrable vault, imagine that. If I told you that you have an inheritance, it's an, an impenetrable vault, you can't get to it, but you will get it. At such and such time in your life, you get it. Would you start making plans? If you believe that you had this great treasure in a vault that nobody can get to, you'll get it when you're 40, you'll get it when you're 50, would you live your life as though you were going to get that? If you believed that it was a real treasure and it was waiting for you and you would receive it, then you would make a lot of decisions differently now, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you make some decisions now based upon it? That's the thing about our living hope. It's living. It's a hope that has its view towards that promise of that which is in heaven. Are you living now in a way? Are you making adjustments in this life now? Because you really believe that you have an inheritance in heaven. And that your treasure is not on the earth. It never is. What we believe, our faith and hope about our inheritance in heaven, reveals what kind of faith we have. But not only does our living hope contain a secure inheritance, this, this secure inheritance that we have in heaven, but it's also protected on earth by a guarding faith. Isn't that amazing? That which is in heaven is protected on the earth. What does that mean? Verses 5 through 8, I pointed them out to you. You who ourselves are protected, but also that inheritance, by the power of God through faith. This is a part of the living hope 
that most people seem to worry about. I'm afraid that my faith is not strong enough to endure persecution. Have you thought that? You say, Jeff, you, you say we should want persecution, but I don't know that I can endure persecution. Well, here's another promise. The faith that you've been given, the saving faith, is not only enough, but it will be proven. And as it's proven through persecution, you'll rejoice. You would be right on the one hand if you said that your faith is weak and prone to waver and hardship. And that's why we have confidence that we may stand firm in the faith which springs from God's grace. God-given faith in the midst of persecution. Part of our living, a resurrected hope, is a guarding faith. We have this guarding faith. Our faith is from God. We can know that for sure. This faith, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our parents. This is a faith that comes from God. And that's what we read in verse 5. We are protected by the power of God. It comes from him, not from us. Secondly, we find that our faith is able to endure trials, even fiery trials. This is the good kind of faith, not the flimsy kind. Verses 6 through 7. You, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, even by fire. It'll be tested and you'll be found to be true, this faith. So are you afraid, like I am a little bit, that my faith will not endure? Well, your fears are warranted, mine are too, because my faith, your faith will not endure. But the faith that comes from Christ, the saving faith it will endure. It will not let you. You say, but I don't know that for sure. You want to know it for sure? You've got to pray for persecution. That's <laughs> the only way you've got to know it. You've got to pray for hardship, trials, and persecution. That's why you greatly rejoice. You should be a little anxious. I don't know if I'll stand. Jesus says you can. Those, those brothers and sisters that are spread about in Cap Cappadocia and Bithynia and, and Pontus and Galatia, they're rejoicing. Why? Because they know they have a faith. Peter learned that he had a faith. Remember when Peter and John, they were arrested and they were told, you're not going to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They're like, all right. So they go out. What do they do? They preach in the name of Jesus. And they get arrested again. And, and when they're talking, they're like, isn't this awesome? This is awesome that we're arrested and they're doing this because we're preaching Jesus. Are you going to keep preaching Jesus? Yep. Oh. Now let them go, and they kept doing it. How did they know? And don't you think this was particularly important and sweet to Peter, who just a few months before said, I don't even know him. He was flimsy as can be. Here, they say, you can't preach in the name of Jesus. We're going to arrest you. We're going to make your life worse than it was before. He's like, okay. And he goes right out and preaches Jesus again. Why? Because he had a faith now. He had a faith that would endure. And this was a faith that wasn't the kind that when Peter said, Jesus, though all forsake you, I will never leave you. Remember when, Jesus, when Peter said that? Do you think he meant it? He did. Was it real? Nope. Because when just a couple people forsook him, he was gone. He was out of there. Here, the whole world turns against him and he says, I can't but preach Jesus. I must. This is a guarding faith. It's not just a faith that comes and that we have to work on. It's the faith that comes from God. The last thing about our faith here is that our faith will re result in rejoicing. When, when you're under the trial where in, in your own flesh you would reject the truth and now you say, I can't. I can't. Even if it costs me everything, I can't. Are you going to rejoice? You know why? Because you know that the faith that you have is not your own, but the faith that comes from Christ, and it is a guarding faith, and you will not. You will not fall. And the sooner and the more often that, that that happens, the more powerful your faith is, not only for your own benefit, but for the sake of others. You need one another to know that you have this kind of faith. You need that. Brothers and sisters, you know you love each other, and you want to be together because you are. But when you know that, you, that the person across the aisle from you or sitting next to you has this kind of faith, you don't have to fear anything. Because they will not fold up and they, will not, they won't go away. This is the faith that doesn't go away. Finally, 
our living hope comes to us through the risen Savior as a great salvation. And that's verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the great salvation. It is important to always think of our salvation as past, present, future, right? But when you are in the midst of terrible hardships and persecution as a result of your of your faith, living your faith, it is most natural to look forward to the day of deliverance. Are you looking forward to that day? I don't mean are you looking forward to a better day, but are you looking for are you looking past this kingdom to the kingdom when your faith is made sight, when when salvation is complete? Three things I want to encourage you with. Number one, our salvation is nothing new. In verse 10, as to this salvation, this Great salvation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. This was the same salvation that they longed for. They weren't saved any other way. They were saved the same way we are, by faith. We have more information. To whom much is given, much is required. We have more than they do. We have more information than they had. But the same spirit of Christ is within them, within us. And likewise, the same salvation that they gained, we gained. And it's that they longed to see and understand the fullness of this. They were looking to the day of Jesus. We're looking to the day of Jesus. They were looking when he would come. They didn't know who he was or what he would be. They didn't know that, but they were looking to that day. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but are you looking to the day of Jesus when he comes and your salvation is made sight? Your faith is made sight? Second thing to consider about this great salvation is our great salvation is testified to by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He spoke, he rejoiced, the Spirit of God, that is, rejoiced to speak into the lives and the hearts of those prophets of the Old Testament that they, that they might yearn for. And the same Spirit who made them aware of this truth is the same Spirit who makes us aware of this, of this truth. Same Spirit. And then finally, our great salvation is it's unique. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through, through those who preach the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This salvation is for men. It's not for angels. Not for, Jesus died for us, that we might be with him forever. Hebrews 2, 3, in, in speaking to this great salvation, the writer says this, how shall we escape? How will you escape God's judgment? And that's what we have to consider as we close. Because the question at this moment is, do you have the faith that saves? Or do you have this abstract, flimsy kind of faith that you don't know if it's real? The question is, you got to know, and you can know, because how will we escape? How will we escape God's judgment and wrath if we ignore this great salvation? And this morning, if you're here and, you, and, and you've heard this before, and you say, I, I, I believe in Jesus out there. I believe in Jesus in here. But don't make Jesus show up on the playground. Don't make Jesus show up in my classroom. Don't make Jesus show up in the boardroom. Don't make Jesus show up in the bedroom. Don't make Jesus show up in all the places of the kingdom that I love. But the question is, how will you escape God's judgment and wrath if you reject and ignore this great salvation? And this great salvation, you know to be true, but you want to see to be true. And the only way to see it to be true is when your faith is tested. And when you're squeezed through hardship, trials, and persecution. So maybe you're here and you're saying, I know I'm in Christ. But I doubt. I waver. I don't know. My faith is weak. I want to have strong faith. I want to be useful not only in my home, but beyond my home. You need the faith you need that faith to be seen that endures. And the only way that comes is through hardship, trial, and persecution. There's no other way. And that's scary. But it's only scary if you have a short view of things. If you're waiting for the day of deliverance, and you know that the kingdom and the inheritance that is waiting you, awaiting you is not in this world, then you'll stop being so married and loving this world as you are. 
And so we pray this morning, we will pray that this great salvation, this guarding faith and this great secure inheritance will be tangible even in this life. The more hardship, the more tangible, the more real it is. So I want us to consider now the, the, the very core of our salvation. It doesn't come through any other means than through Christ Jesus himself, who gave himself as a sacrifice that we might know him. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He laid down his life. He who knew no sin laid down his life. He gave his life. He didn't deserve to die, but he died for us. We deserve to die because of our sin, that we might have eternal life through him. Let's pray together. Father, who shall separate us from the love of your son, Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The psalmist has instructed us, Father. For thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But Father, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ who loves us to the very end. Therefore, we are as your adopted children, standing firm in the faith we have received by the hearing of your word and the keeping and intercessory power of your Holy Spirit. We, by faith, are convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and in whose name we pray. Amen.